Hello and welcome to Off the Page, the podcast from International Literature Festival Dublin. For this week's episode, we're revisiting a 2016 event celebrating the work of Irish writer Maeve Brennan. Maeve Brennan was born in Dublin on January 6, 1917. At the time, her father, Robert Brennan, was in prison in England, having taken part in the rising in Enniscorthy, County Wexford, during Easter week 1916. Her mother, Una, was a member of the local Comanaman, which had set up an emergency hospital and a kitchen in the Athenian building in the centre of the town. She was one of, the, of three women who hoisted the Republican flag over the building when the rising began. Following his release from prison, Robert remained politically active. He was involved in the War of Independence and in the Civil War, siding with Eamon de Valera against the treaty. He eventually went on to found the Irish Press newspaper, and in 1934 he became Ireland's first diplomatic envoy to the United States. The family moved to Washington, D.C. Robert, Una, their three daughters, Emer, Maeve and Deirdre, and a son, Robert Patrick. They had spent the previous 10 years living in a house on Cherryfield Avenue in Ranala, and it is this modest family home where Maeve lived between the ages of 7 and 17 that would provide the setting for nearly all of her Dublin-based short stories. I first became aware of Maeve Brennan in very early January 1998, when the Irish Times carried a piece by Fintan O'Toole which charted what had become of her following on from the family's move to the U.S., Maeve had moved to New York after attending college in Washington. She had worked at Harper's Bazaar, writing about fashion, and had moved from there to The New Yorker, becoming a staff writer in 1949. She had published short stories and articles in that magazine through the 1950s, 60s, and into the 70s. Her last piece was published in December 1980. Moving through the 1970s and 80s, she suffered periods of mental illness. She had never been good at taking care of herself. Whatever money she earned, she spent it or she gave it away. She had lived mainly in hotels in Lower Manhattan, moving from one to the next. She eventually ended up homeless, and then she vanished. She died in November 1993 in the Lawrence Nursing Home in the Borough of Queens. By then, none of the staff in the nursing home knew much of her history. She no longer had a grasp of it herself. The occasion of Fintan O'Toole's article was the publication in the US in late 1997 of The Springs of Affection, uh, edited by Christopher Carduff for Houghton Mifflin. The book brings together most of the Dublin-based stories Maeve had written, gathering them from the two collections that had appeared during her lifetime, In and Out of Never Never Land, Land in 1969 and Christmas Eve in 1974. Those two collections had never been published outside the U.S. In his introduction to that 1997 Houghton Mifflin edition, the writer William Maxwell, who had been Maeve's editor, colleague and friend at The New Yorker, all the time she worked there, wrote, I don't know whether in Ireland she is considered an Irish writer or an American. In fact, she is both, and both countries ought to be proud to claim her. The truth, as it turned out, was that Ireland hardly considered Maeve to be any kind of writer, and precious little attempt had been made to claim her as one of our own. It was Fintan O'Toole's article that would begin the process of remembrance and recognition, and yet it's taken another 18 years for an Irish edition of Maeve's short stories to appear. 
I'm delighted to be the one who got to make that happen in the end. And I'm delighted to be here tonight with Maeve's biographer, Angela Burke, and with the writer, broadcaster, and critic, Sinead Leeson, to discuss Maeve's life and work. I'll be doing that a little later on, but firstly, I'd like to in invite Katrina Niwerku to read one of Maeve's stories. This is the morning after the big fire. From the time I was almost five until I was almost 18, we lived in a small house in a part of Dublin called Renala. On our street, all of the houses were of red brick and had small back gardens, part cement and part grass, separated from one another by low stone walls, over which, when we first moved in, I was unable to peer although in later years I seem to remember looking over them quite easily, so I suppose they were about five feet high. All of the gardens had a common end wall, which was, of course, very long, since it stretched the whole length of our street. Our street was called an avenue because it was blind at one end, the farthest end from us. It was a short avenue, 26 houses on one side and 26 on the other. We were number 48, and only four houses from the main road, Renala Road, on which trams and buses and all kinds of cars ran, making a good deal of noisy traffic. Beyond the end wall of our garden lay a large tennis club, and sometimes in the summer, especially when the tournaments were on, my little sister and I used to perch in an upstairs back window and watch the players in their white dresses and white flannels and hear their voices calling the scores. There was a clubhouse, but we couldn't see it. Our view was partly obstructed by a large garage building that leaned against the end wall of our garden and the four other gardens between us and Renala Road. A number of people who lived on our avenue kept their cars in the garage, and the people who came to play tennis parked their cars there. It was a very busy place, the garage, and I had never been in there, although we bought our groceries in a shop that was connected with it. The shop fronted on Renal Road, and the shop and the garage were the property of a red-faced gangling man and his fat, pink-haired wife, the McRory's. On summer afternoons, when my sister and I went around to the shop to buy little paper cups of yellow water ice, some of the players would be there, refreshing themselves with ices and also with bottles of lemonade. Early one summer morning, while it was still dark, I heard my father's voice sounding very excited outside the door of the room in which I slept. I was about eight. My little sister slept in the same room with me. McRory's is on fire, my father was saying. He had been awakened by the red glare of the flames against his window. He threw on some clothes and hurried off to see what was going on and my mother let us look at the fire from a back window, the same window from which we were accustomed to view the tennis matches. It was a really satisfactory fire, <laughs> with leaping flames, thick pouring smoke, and a steady roar of destruction, broken by crashes as parts of the roof collapsed. My mother wondered if they had managed to save the cars, and this made us all look at the burning building with new interest and with enormous awe 
as we imagined the big shining cars being eaten up by the galloping fire. It was very exciting. My mother hurried us back to our front bedroom, but even there the excitement could be felt, with men calling to one another on the street and banging their front doors after them as they raced off to see the fun. Since she had decided there was no danger to our house, my mother tucked us firmly back into bed, but I could not sleep. And as soon as it grew light, I dressed myself and trotted downstairs. My father had many stories to tell. The garage was a ruin, he said, but the shop was safe. Many cars had been destroyed. No one knew how the fire had started. Some of the fellows connected with the garage had been very brave, dashing in to rescue as many cars as they could reach. The part of the building that overlooked our garden appeared charred, frail, and empty because it no longer had much in the way of a roof and its insides were gone. The air smelt very burnt. I wandered quietly out into the avenue, which was deserted because the children had not come out to play and it was still too early for the men to be going to work. I walked up the avenue in the direction of the blind end. The people living there were too far from the garage to have been disturbed by the blaze. A woman whose little boy was a friend of mine came to her door to take in the milk. McRory's was burnt down last night, I cried to her. What's that? She said, very startled. Burnt to the ground, I said. Hardly a wall left standing. A whole lot of people's cars burnt up too. She looked back over her shoulder in the direction of her kitchen, which, since all the houses were identical, was in the same position as our kitchen. Jim, she cried, do you hear this? McRory's was burnt down last night, the whole place, not a stick left. We slept right through it, she said to me, looking as though just the thought of that heavy sleep puzzled and unsettled her. Her husband hurried out to stand beside her, and I had to tell the whole story again. (laughs) He said he would run round to McRory's and take a look, and this enraged me, because I wasn't allowed around there, and I knew that when he came back he would be a greater authority than I. (laughs) However, there was no time to lose. Other people were opening their front doors by now, and I wanted everyone to hear the news from me. Did you hear the news? I shouted to as many as I could catch up with, and of course, once I had their ear, they were fascinated by what I had to tell. One or two of the men, hurrying away to work, charged past me with such forbiddingly closed faces that I was afraid to approach them, and they continued in their ignorance down towards Renola Road, causing me dreadful anguish because I knew that before they could board their tram or their bus, some officious busybody would be sure to treat them to my news. (laughs) Then one woman, to whom I always afterwards felt friendly, called down to me from her front bedroom window. What's that you were telling Mrs. Pierce? She asked me in a loud whisper. Oh, just that McRory's was burnt to the ground last night. Nearly all the cars burnt up too. Hardly anything left, my father says. By this time, I was being very offhand. (laughs) You don't tell me, she said, making a delighted face. And the next thing I knew, she was opening her front door more eager for news than anybody. However, my hour of glory was short. The other children came out. 
Some of them were actually allowed to go around and view the wreckage. And soon the fire was mine no longer, because there were others walking around who knew more about it than I did. I pretended to lose interest, although I was glad when someone, not my father, gave me a lump of twisted, blackened tin off one of the cars. The tennis clubhouse had been untouched, and that afternoon the players appeared, as bright and immaculate in their snowy flannels and linens, as though the smoking garage yard and the lines of charred cars through which they had picked their way to the courts could never interfere with them or impress them. It was nearing tournament time, and a man was painting the platform in which the judge was to sit, and from which a lady in a white hat and a flowered chiffon dress would present cups and medals to the victors among the players. Now, in the sunshine, they lifted their rackets and started to play, and their intent and formal cries mingled with the hoarse shouts of the men at work in the dark shambles of the garage. My little sister and I, watching from our window, could imagine that the rhythmical thud of the ball against the rackets coincided with the unidentifiable sounds we heard from the wreckage, which might have been groans or shrieks as the building, unable to recover from the fire, succumbed to it. It was not long before the McGrorys put up another garage, made of silvery corrugated metal stuff that looked garish and glaring against our garden wall. It cut off more of our view than the old building had. The new garage looked very hard and lasting, as unlikely to burn as a pot or a kettle. The beautiful green courts that had always seemed from our window to roll comfortably in the direction of the old wooden building now seemed to have turned and to be rolling away into the distance, as though they did not like the unsightly new structure and would have nothing to do with it. My father said the odds were all against another fire there, but I remembered that fine, dark morning with all the excitement and my own importance, and I longed for another just like it. This time, however, I was determined to discover the blaze before my father did. Mm. And I watched the garage closely, as much of it as I could see, for signs that it might be getting ready to go up in flames. But I was disappointed. It stood, and still was standing, ugly as ever, when we left the house years later. Still, for a long time, I used to think that if some child should steal around there with a match one night and set it all blazing again, I would never blame her, as long as she let me be the first with the news. back on duty. Uh, so thanks, Katrina. Um, Katrina is, um, as well as being an actor, she's a play, playwright and um, children's book author and um, has just returned from playing the title role in Forever Yours, Mary Lou, at the Eustonough Studio Theatre Royal Bath, directed by Lawrence Boswell. And her own play, Eating Seals and Seagulls' Eggs, uh, which I saw myself and which is brilliant, um, which is about, kind of about a, a 
a re-examination of another great Irish writer, Peg Sayers. Um, and that went to the Edinburgh Fringe last year and was also turned into an RTE play. Um, we'll hear more from Katrina a little later on. And I'm seated here with uh, Angela Burke, who is the author of the uh, biography of Mae Brennan, Homesick at the New Yorker, uh, published in London and New York in 2004. It was the first book about this fascinating writer. Uh, she's also the author of The Burning of Bridget Cleary, A True Story, and joint editor of the Field Day anthologies, Anthology Volumes 4 and 5, Irish Women's Writing and Traditions. And we might talk a bit about that later <laughs> on, because um, it certainly comes into play uh, in our discussion. Uh, her famine folio, Voices Underground, Memory, Forgetting and Oral Verbal Art, will be published later this year by Cork University Press. Um, she's an emer emeritus professor of U at UCD and a member of the Royal Irish Academy. Sinead Gleeson is a broadcaster, critic and writer who presents the book show on RT Radio 1. She reviews books for the Irish Times and RT Radio 1's art show arena. In 2012, she edited Silver Threads of Hope and most recently, The Long Gaze Back, an anthology of Irish women writers. Uh, and The Long Gaze Back came from... Um, the, uh, a Line in the Visitor um, by Maeve Brennan, which was the novella that was found after Maeve's death uh, among the papers of an agency in New York, I believe, wasn't it? Um, in the Library of Notre Dame, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah but I think originally it came from this yeah. Catholic publishing yeah. house or something. Um, and Sinead is currently editing The Last Shore, short stories by women from the north of Ireland, which will be published in this, this autumn. So now... Let's talk <laughs> about Maeve. Uh, Angela, um, you had also seen the Fintan O'Toole piece, but there were other forces in play that were bringing you towards Maeve Brennan. Yeah, I saw the Fintan O'Toole piece, and I thought it was a wonderful piece, and I thought it was very interesting, but it didn't occur to me that it would have anything to do with me, that I would take it and run with it or anything like that. But then friends of mine who live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, read a review of the reissued Springs of Affection in 1997 and sent me a copy and it's I believed that it was a book that I ought to read because it was about Renala where I was living and as it happened I was living on Cherryfield Avenue had been living there for years I had no idea that Maeve had lived on Cherryfield Avenue but then I was talking to Ita Daly um, whose husband David Marcus um, had published some of um, Maeve's stories and she said you know do you, have you heard of Maeve Brennan I said the book's on the side of my bed but I haven't started it yet yeah. And uh, she said, did you know that she lived in Cherryfield Avenue? And more events like that just kept happening. Yeah. And people who, when I asked if people had heard of Maeve Brennan, it turned out that my, my mother had recently discovered that an old buddy of hers who lived nearby, and we were Southsiders in Terenure, uh, was a cousin of Ita Doyle, um, Roger Doyle's mother. Yes. And I said, well, if she's a cousin of Roger Doyle's mother, she has to be a cousin of Maeve Brennan, so it all. Yeah. Sorry, she was a sister of, of Roger Doyle's mother. So it, it, you know, there were, it became very overdetermined, and yeah. uh, then uh, Nola Foyline actually said when I asked her about her, she produced a copy of The Visitor from her bag, and uh, she was writing a, a puff for the back yeah. cover. It hadn't come out yet, and uh, she said to me, "Are you going to write about her?" Yeah. And it actually hadn't occurred to me until then. Then I thought that I probably should, and and so I did. Can I just ask, tell us about the, that, when you did take the book then off the, 
from the bed the nightstand. Oh yeah, I mean the um, the reading of it. It's you know it's I love short stories, but it's hard to read short stories in bed at night because you want to read the whole story. You want to know what it's you know you want time to think about it afterwards. So I actually didn't read it in bed at night. I read it sitting in a chair, and I first of all read stories like the one that Katrina's just read so beautifully, the, the ones that are, have this wonderful recall, and they're really not fiction, they're, they're memoir, mm. but memoir was not a genre that was named as such really at the time. And so they, they're presented as, as stories, and William Maxwell says they're very definitely stories, and he's kind of consecrating them in that way. But um, I read those early stories um, that are full of memory, full of a kind of vividness and a great sense of the importance of the child and the, the way the child's personality wants to burst out and she wants to say things and she wants to be heard and the way everything, everything is conspiring to not let her say them. And I thought that was wonderful. But then as I read on into the stories and I tried to read in the order they're given, mm -hmm. and this is, I think, Chris, I, I really applaud your uh, initiative in republishing these stories because they've been unavailable for a long time. But Chris Cardiff who arranged them in this order in this book and gave this book the title, The Springs of Affection. He did yeah. a really wonderful job. And so but when you come to the later stories in the book, uh, they, are, they are so much between the bark and the tree. There's so much about the, the actual physical experience of feeling things. And yet it's, it's, they're, they're, they're so eloquent. They're so beautifully written. The sentences just mm. flow and stand by themselves um, and then they, they're emotionally absolutely devastating. Yeah. Sinead, when did you first read the stories? Um, well, the, on Saturdays the Guardian has a book section called The Review and now it has horrible font and type on the front but it used to be, the cover used to be a whole photograph right. and sure enough in I think it was June, July 2004 I picked up The Guardian on a Saturday and the whole cover was Carl Bissinger's famous photograph of Maeve, this one here. Mm -hmm. um, and inside was a, a large extract uh, from Angela's book. And as I started to read, uh, I was incredibly intrigued. And also that feeling of, why have I never heard of this person? How yeah. has this person remained so mysterious uh, and left behind and, and forgotten? Um, and I'm in a book club, and one of the other women in the book club had a copy of The Visitor and loaned it to me. And that was the first thing I read was The Visitor. Yeah. Uh, and then I went online because you couldn't really get stuff here. I was always looking in second-hand shops and charity shops. So I have the American Rose Garden. I have yeah. an original, the first edition of In and Out of Never Leverland and oh Christmas right. Eve. Yeah, I've, got, I've gone all out. <laughs> um, but it was, so it, I, I, weirdly enough, then I read them and then obviously I, I read all the fiction first and yeah. then I went the, 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 the long one. I don't think it matters what order you read them in, no. but again, always percolating in the back of my mind was, you know, where, where has she been and why has nobody done anything about it and I do think it can't be understated I mean I think Angela is single-handedly responsible for, for resurrecting Maeve I mean like you say there was the gap from Finton's article to Angela's book and nobody had done anything and nobody's done that much in between it's starting yeah. to change in the last sort of four or five years but if it wasn't for Angela's book a lot of people practically nobody would know about Maeve I think yeah and Angela can you tell us a bit about you know where did you start when you made that decision that you were going to Oh, right, the book. Well, it's, it's, it's quite a while ago. The book yeah. came out in 2004. <laughs> um, and I didn't start working on it until about 2000. Because actually I went to Cambridge, Massachusetts for, because my book, The Burning of Bridget Cleary, was published mm. in New York. And so they brought me over to do some 
tours and um, the same friends who had sent me the book introduced me to various people, some of whom had, had met Maeve, yeah. um, others who had read her in the New Yorker, who had, there was a woman called Ellen Wilbur who had had a story of her own in an anthology that Maeve was also in. And it seemed that Maeve, when she, when, when anybody reads her, they become kind of converted. They, they, they carry a, a candle for her yeah. then afterwards. So I suppose I put together lots and lots of names and addresses and phone numbers and I read all the, book, all the stories, of course, and yeah. I got Christmas Eve and I got in and out of Never Never Land and um, I, I did a chronology because I had done that with my previous book. I opened a file on my yeah. computer that was a kind of a blow-by-blow blow chronology yeah. and so any piece of information that I got about Maeve or about her family or about things that were happening, even contemporary, I, I put them in, in the relevant place because it became very clear very quickly that there was very little archive material. There are papers in Delaware and then there are letters that Maeve wrote in various collections because of course she wrote letters to all sorts of big literary figures like William Maxwell, like Howard Moss. Now I didn't get to the Howard Moss letters. Um, I got to the William Maxwell letters. I got to a lot of Maeve's own papers in Delaware. There's an excellent young scholar called Ellen McWilliams who has spent time with the Howard Moss papers and she has been writing about Maeve. Uh, So people are doing new work you know, yeah. rising out of my book. But I suppose I, I went, I, I didn't get into the New Yorker offices. Um, I read a piece by Mary Hawthorne that, uh, about her kind of discovery that a, a woman who had been sitting muttering in the lobby of the New Yorker offices when she went there turned out to be a former writer at the magazine. And she, she's the one actually who, who dug out these photographs, the Carl yeah, Bissinger photographs. Right. I spoke to Carl Bissinger on the phone. Right. Uh, in New York and I learned how to get hold of his photograph and I heard about his experience because they were both working for Harper's Bazaar. He would be sent on a photo shoot and she was the junior fashion writer who would uh, be accompanying him and she would have to write the very precise descriptions of clothing because ready-made clothes were were not widely available. People had their clothes, they made their own clothes or they had them made by dressmakers and so a fashion writer wasn't just talking about trends. A fashion writer was telling you how to, how to do this and telling you the fabric, telling you the kind of stitching, telling you whether it was cut on the bias or cut on the straight and all those things. Yeah. So Maeve was honing her skills, but Carl Bissinger said he was quite frightened of her. He was a gay man who was, thought that she was one of these women that would just kind of cut him to pieces. Right. Um, but he, he found her then very wary. He, you know, he found her more perhaps frightened than he had thought from her rather, he thought, brittle yeah. exterior. Um, but I suppose my, my beginning was really talking to people yeah. as well as reading her own stories and reading her own stories kind of forensically because it's not that I want to take a simplistic approach that the stories are all autobiographical. Some of them, however, are. And Maeve has this weird thing where she's very kind of... She's into a kind of numerology where she's always calculating, you know, it's the 10th wedding anniversary or it's the... It's, uh, you know, I'm 47, I've been married for this many years and my father died this many years ago. And by correlating those kinds of numbers with the events in her own family's life, yeah. I was able to find she was actually, you know, she's, it's not, she's not making these numbers up. Yeah. She's, she's trying to somehow pin something down and she's being extremely precise about chronology and numbers and everything. So um, then I... Uh, looked around to see if anybody w- might publish such a book and yeah. I, I got a contract because my Bridget Cleary book had done quite well. So that, then I, 
I just slogged away until it yeah, was written. Yeah, yeah. Well, well done. Um, so you mentioned the, the autobiographical element of the stories. I mean, the, there are the, the opening stories of this of the collection of Springs of Affection are these kind of autobiographical vignettes of, of childhood, uh, where there is a, 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 a character to speak. The narrator is called Maeve, and she has the daughter, uh, the sisters, Emer um, and uh, Georgia, mm -hmm. Derry, and then uh, the little brother and. Um, but then you, we move into two suites of stories set in the same house that Maeve grew up in, and it's the, the story of the Durtons and the Baggots. And uh, neither is a particularly happy marriage. They're just <coughs> unhappy in different ways. And I was, I was at um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf um, during the week, and I, just, you know, and I was sitting watching That's it. the Durtons. <laughs> Well, it is and isn't, but it's, is it because the, 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 um, George and Martha, is it because they're American or is it because they're in a play that they are, you know, they are vocalizing it, whereas it's all just interior and on the page with, with the Durtons and the Baggots. So the, the hatred is just as the volume is as turned up, <coughs> but, uh, you know, it's all, it's all interior monologue. And we go inside the the, the, the heads, the minds, the hearts of, of both, you know, protagonists, the, the husband and wife in both marriage. And that's, I think that's partly what makes the stories feel so contemporary and modern still, is that you are so close to, you know, to the psychological bone, I suppose, or to mm -hmm. the psychic bone. Um, yeah, I, th I think she's a, a very, very <coughs> interior kind of writer. Mm. Um, a lot of these were in characters' heads for most of the stories. There's also... Mm. You'll notice it if you read them. There's not a lot of dialogue in a lot of these stories. It's all of the talking is done in people's heads, and all of the silences speak volumes in the stories. There's a lot of slammed doors. There's a lot of whispering under your breath. There's a lot of talking through the wall, you know, yeah. and a lot of slighting each other. I mean, the, the viciousness between Rose and Herbert is, is really striking mm -hmm. to read for the stories that were written so long ago. And it is interesting that, you know, Maeve wasn't published here in her lifetime, and I really wonder what would have happened if somebody was writing about a brutal Irish marriage like that at that time and was a woman. I don't think it would have been, you know, in the post-Charles, John Charles McQuaid kind of world, I don't think that would have been accepted. I don't think people would have liked that kind of airing of, uh, you know, the, the past was all about keeping your mouth shut and not yeah. speaking it out. And, and it's very, very, I mean, th there's, there's such darkness, there's yeah. such vitriol, there's such pettiness, but also yeah. acts of, you know, uh, vengeance in the stories and, yeah. and it, it's really surprising to read if you think that this is you're going to pick up a book about you know marriages and husbands and wives and all about the domestic be prepared mm -hmm. strap yourself in because it's mm. really full on yeah I'm just thinking it might have brought the divorce referendum <laughs> forward Absolutely. a few years if people yeah. had all got to read it um, the Mary Morrissey wrote a piece for the stinging fly when we did a New York issue at New, um, and in 2011, and she wrote about you know discovering Maeve stories mm -hmm. and, and and seeing that the domestic could be a space to create fiction in. Mm -hmm. And reading that, I was I was kind of reminded of the kind of the the, the claims that Ivan Boland had to make for her own mm -hmm. poetic space mm -hmm. within the domestic mm -hmm. out in uh, Dundrum, and mm -hmm. um, and if you know I, I would. So then I'd had the question, and 
Ivan, it's not here to answer that question, but you know, did, when did she read those stories? Or, and if she had had the opportunity, if we as a society had had the opportunity to read Maeve Brennan earlier, it just, I think, it would have allowed writers maybe more freedom to It would have felt on. like permission yes, for exactly, a lot of people and a lot of women writers, I think. She would have had to be in some kind of canon, though, as she has begun to be. Right. And I think the kind of world that, that she didn't come back to or that she came back and visited would have been so relentlessly inhospitable to her yeah. that she would have, she, she would have been hunted and, and yeah. hounded. Yeah. You know, the, the only forum for, for a writer to come back to would have been The Late Late Show. Sure. And can you just imagine yeah. The Late Late Show? Yeah. Her father died, May's father died in 1964. I was just checking some of these dates, but the, the famous episode of The Bishop and the Mighty happened yeah. in 1966 on mm. The Late Late Show. And that was when Maeve was in her heyday, really. Yeah. Um, but, if, but she, and she was married for a while. She was the fourth wife of St. Clair McKelway, who was even more uh, spendthrift and uh, kind of undomesticated than she was. Um, and that marriage didn't last very long, I think, because she realised that she might find herself responsible for his debts. And this was... And it wasn't that she, she hadn't a mean bone in her body. She was a yeah. tremendously generous woman. She, if anybody had married anything, she gave it to them. She was very kind, very uh, generous, but she was also... They said she had a tongue that could clip a head. She, was, she didn't take prisoners. But um, if she had come back to Ireland and claimed... You know, she said... I, what, I felt so sh as ashamed of having a little talent as mm. one might feel about being born without a nose. And some of it was that her father was an active writer, but he was writing a kind of potboiler-type detective fiction. Uh, quite witty, quite okay, but his books are, are not um, remembered. And he actually mm. had a play in the Abbey Theatre, that Goodnight, Mr. O'Donnell, and it was in Irish, as he the Vicky Ola. And David and Marcus apparently published something by him as well, who published <coughs> Maeve. Yeah. But, right. I, but I think, as you say, if, if, if she had come back, I mean, maybe in her, her family came back around the Second World War, I think. But and Maeve, yeah, and after Maeve, it, yeah. Yeah, and Maeve, Maeve stayed there. And I think she, you know, very cannily copped on there's a lot more opportunity, freedom and autonomy if I yeah. stay in New York. If I go back to Ireland, I, society will expect things of me. They'll expect me to not sleep with anybody before I'm married, you know, to not use contraception, to, not, to, to get married, to have children. It would have been all that weight of expectation Absolutely. on her, whereas in New York... Not only were there, you know, the, the wonderful life of the New Yorker and her friends and her freedom, there was the opportunity to be a writer, yeah. Yeah. which I don't think that would have necessarily happened yeah. if she'd come back here. I met, I met yeah. just over Easter um, because uh, the family were taking part in uh, the, the commemoration events. But um, so Yvonne Gerald, who mm. would have been Deirdre's daughter, daughter was yeah. over, and I met with her, and she said that, um, but she said that she had never met anyone. No, she has never met anyone in her life like Maeve, mm. who's just this extremely extraordinary personality mm. and character. But she also said of her own life that she, she left Dublin in 1963, I think it was, because she, did, she couldn't bear to stay in a place where the men, all the men hated women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and if Maeve had been trying, if Maeve had been published in Dublin, or if Maeve had been claiming, or if a publisher had been claiming a space for her in the 1960s, I think the first response would have been, "What the hell would she know about any of this? She doesn't live mm. here." That would be part of it. It, it would be it would have been a deep undermining of her authority, and, and yeah. the fact that she didn't have children would yeah. disqualify her to write about children. And the fact that okay. she was not married, or she was married to a man who'd already been divorced, or yeah. was now herself divorced, would again she would have been portrayed as 
as she sometimes said to her nieces, you know, if you can't be a good example, you can be the terrible deterrent or something like that. Um, mm. she, but, but I think the society as a whole would have just gone for yeah. her to bury her. Look at what happened to Edna O'Brien. Well, yeah. yeah. Edna and Nora Holt and John yeah. McGahar in the mm. 60s yeah. was the year of, 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 of moral persecution. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And people would still, I mean, and have done up until very recently, and it's, I mean, it's great to see Edna O'Brien being celebrated now <laughs> the way that she is, yeah. but uh, she had to live a long time for that to happen. She really did. Um, and, yes, yeah, she... And she, it's often been, she's often been accused of writing of an Ireland that no longer exists because she lives away, and how dare she write, continue to write of Ireland while living in London. So, you know, that would have been the fate Nobody of me. Nobody said that about Joyce or Beckett, though. No, they didn't. They didn't. Anything, and they didn't know? say it about Frank O'Connor. And Frank yeah. O'Connor was at the New Yorker, it was publishing in the New Yorker, and was being edited by William Maxwell, and was very close friends yeah. with William Maxwell at the same time as Maeve was writing. And Frank O'Connor, you know, took on the mantle of great man of letters, yeah. very naturally, really. Um, and, and people let him, yeah. I mean, and rightly so from all sorts of points of view, but that, there was no mantle. They didn't make them in women's sizes yeah. or right. cuts, you know. I, I'm going to ask Katrina to uh, read from... It's, it's, um, she's, Katrina is going to read two sections from Family Walls um, because it... Uh, the stories, uh, as they became more serious, I suppose, also became much longer, so we wouldn't have time to, to, to hear this whole story. And it's one of my favourites <laughs> in the collection. It's, it's the last, I think it's the last one that appeared in The New Yorker is, in, yeah. from the, of this suite of stories. And um, so what happens is uh, Hugh, 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 Hubert. Hugh, Hubert. Hubert, 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 Derton, works in a clothing shop in Grafton Street and he leaves work one day and he thinks he's going to walk home and wouldn't that be a great idea to walk home uh, but he ends up getting the tram just as usual and arriving in around the same time as he, ever, as he does every day and as he does so um, he sees the, the kitchen door, he arrives into the hallway and he sees the kitchen door being open a crack and then shutting and he knows that his wife has um, seen him and decided not to greet him. Uh, so he goes into the sitting room and he, uh, he fumes for a while. And then eventually, um, it's Delia. No, it's not Delia. It's Rose. 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 <laughs> Rose comes up and they have a confrontation uh, and he refuses to have his tea now. Um, <laughs> and I think at that point we can carry on. <coughs> there, are, there are other sections in the story, sorry, that where there, um, there are reminiscences of their early married life, but we're sticking to the present tense here and the present time. Hubert had heard Rose returning to the kitchen, but he had not heard the kitchen door close, although he knew she must have closed it. Now there was no sign from the kitchen. Well, that's all right, Hubert said. Let her do what she likes. But he couldn't go on sitting in his armchair forever, doing nothing. He couldn't concentrate. He couldn't read. He didn't want to read. He didn't want to do anything. He had made up his mind not to give in to her. Sooner or later, somebody was going to have to make a move. But Hubert felt that the decision had been taken out of his hands and that it was now up to Rose to make some gesture. 
When he first came home and saw her close the door against him, he had had the choice between going down to the kitchen or not going down there. Now that choice was gone. Instead of making the choice, he had asserted himself. And any sign he gave now would mean that he had backed down. She would have to come out of the kitchen sometime. She would want to go out to have a last look at her garden. Bedtime would come. It was only a matter of waiting until the normal routine of the house washed him out of the corner he had been forced into. It would be all the same in a hundred years. But Hubert knew that as long as he lived, he would never understand why Rose had closed the door against him like that. He no longer wondered why she had closed the door. He only wished he had not seen it close. The window behind him was a big oblong, almost a square, a sash window, and it faced the end wall of their garden. At the other side of the wall lay the courts of the tennis club. Hubert and Rose considered the members of the tennis club to be a gay and fashionable set, and Hubert said they were a worthless crowd. On Saturday nights, they could hear dance music from the large new addition to the clubhouse. The members called the new addition the pavilion. The dance music annoyed Hubert. And although Rose had once loved to dance, she never protested when he got up and shut the window so that they could have a little peace and quiet in the house. The entrance to the club was on the main road that ran past the end of the terrace of small houses where the Durdens lived. On one side, the club grounds ended at the long end wall that was common to the 26 gardens owned by the Durdens and their neighbours all up and down the terrace. The farther boundaries of the club were marked by groves of trees. If Hubert had gone to stand by the window, he would have seen the tops of the trees far away beyond the courts and beyond the trees coming towards him, the sky. He didn't move. He sat and listened. The window was open at the top and he could hear the quarrelsome old window next door scolding her middle-aged daughter who was unmarried and living at home, doing the housework and cooking and easing her occasional rebellious rages with loud crying fits that could be heard in the Durden's kitchen and also in the back sitting room. That garden next door was a wilderness of ivy and nettles and neglected cabbage plants. It was a disgraceful household. Hubert hoped the unhappy daughter would not have a crying fit this evening, and he wished both women would be removed to some lunatic asylum, and that a single man who was never at home would move in next door. He listened to the old woman's thin, cruel voice, and he thought he heard the daughter's hysterical silence. He heard faintly voices from the tennis courts, and he heard the Donovan's big collie crying pitifully as it strained at the chain that held it to the cramped kennel that had been its home from a puppy. The Donovans kept the dog as a protection against burglars. Hubert wished a burglar might climb over the end wall and free the dog, who could then go into the house and kill Tom Donovan and his wife 
and their three impertinent children and perhaps have enough to eat for once in its life. He heard more than he could bear to hear. The back sitting room was filling up with lives he despised and with people he detested. And he had no defense against any of it. He could have closed the window, but he was sure that the minute he appeared there with his arms up, pushing the sash tight, Rose would open the kitchen door, coming out into the garden. And he did not want to see her. He didn't want to see her because he did not care about her. It was the first true thing he had said in a long time, and he was glad it was out in the open at last. He simply didn't care about her. He cared nothing at all about her, and he couldn't understand why he hadn't realized it a long time ago. He couldn't stand the thought of seeing her and having to speak to her and having to go on living in the same house with her. He could not think of her now without seeing the fluttering dishonesty of her expression. And he wondered if it would ever seem worth his while again to try to speak directly to her. What was the use of trying to talk to her? She never said yes or no. It was always, whatever you like, or I don't mind, or maybe, if that's what you want. And then the mute resignation that followed his decision, which of course was never what she wanted. Although wild horses would not have dragged an objection out of her. No, he wouldn't bother trying to talk to her. It wasn't worth his while, and it would only distress her for nothing. All the same, although Hubert felt that Rose was of no importance, he knew she was better than a good many people, better than the two women next door, and better than the Donovans, and better than that loud, good-for-nothing crowd at the tennis club. And he knew she was defenseless, and he felt that his indifference left her exposed, even though she didn't know about it, and he pitied her because in her own way she did her best and nobody cared anything at all about her. She was a lost cause, all right, and it was a good thing that only he knew it. It would be terrible for Rose if the rest of the world knew what he knew about her. It was no accident that she always lagged behind him. She had no sense. She was not able to take care of herself. She had always been the same. Hubert got out of his chair and walked to the door. His mind was made up. He would go upstairs and wash his hands, as usual, and change from his suit coat into his woolen cardigan, as usual, and then he would come down and let events take their course. His mind was made up, but even so, he hesitated before opening the door. But once the door was open, he was up the stairs like a shot and into the bathroom, where he scrubbed his hands vigorously and splashed cold water on his face. He felt better already, knowing he was going to do the right thing. It was all a lot of nonsense, much better to get everything out into the open. Now he would go straight down to the kitchen and have it out with Rose. He would laugh her out of her gloominess, 
It was only a matter of finding the right thing to say. He would get her to laugh at herself and see what nonsense all this bickering was. He hurried down the stairs and down the three steps that led from the hall to the kitchen as though he were bringing news that could not wait. Good news. The best news. But at the kitchen door he hesitated. And then, hearing no movement inside, although she must have heard him thundering down the stairs, he beat a loud postman's tattoo on the door and burst into the room to find it empty. The door into the garden was open. She had gone out there, and he could not follow her. All the neighbours would look out through their back windows, and anyone who happened to be out in the neighbouring gardens could hear every word he said. He looked over at the stove to see if by any chance she had left the teapot there. But the top of the stove was as clear as the top of the table and the drain board by the sink. The kitchen was spotless. She had finished working there. There was nothing to eat then. He went back up to the sitting room and went in. There on the dining room table, which they kept folded against the wall opposite the fireplace, she had left a tray. He went over and looked at it. Brown bread and a slice of ham. She had taken the trouble to shape the butter into curly balls. A tomato. Three chocolate biscuits. The teapot was at the fireplace, sitting inside the fender with the cosy over it. He hurried over to the teapot and pulled the cosy off it and carried it to the table and shakily poured tea into his cup and returned the pot to the hearth. It was too hot to settle down on the table. He poured milk into his tea and drank it down quickly. He wanted another cup at once, but this time he carried the cup over to the hearth and filled it there. Then he sat down at the table and began to eat his way through everything on the tray. When everything was gone, he felt better, although he could have done without the third chocolate biscuit. He had been hungry, that was all. Famished. He wouldn't mind having his tea from a tray like this every evening. He sat gazing at the ravaged tray and thinking about how she had smuggled it into the room while he was upstairs. It was clever of her. She had wanted him to have his tea, but she had not wanted to face him. She had taken a lot of trouble over the tray. He got up and went to the window. She was there, kneeling sideways to him by the flower bed that ran along the wall where the laburnum tree was. The laburnum had been there when they moved in, together with the yellow rose that was on the opposite side of the garden. Apart from the laburnum and the rose, there had been nothing. The place was a wilderness when they first saw it. But Rose had seen immediately that it had the makings of a good garden. Her work in the garden was wonderful. Hubert did not know where she had got her knowledge of flowers. She was kneeling out there now, settling something, some little plant, into its bed. She was intent on placing the plant in its exact place. And she was as anxious at her work as though she had taken the future of the world between her hands 
and must set it right once and for all because there would be no second chance no second chance for her at least to prove that if it was left to her all would be well for this moment the weight of the world was off her shoulders and in her hands she finished and sat back on her heels and rubbed her open hands together to get rid of the earth then she put her hand on the handle of the watering can and began to get awkwardly to her feet Hubert looked away from her and down at his own hands there was no need for him to watch her to know how she got up he had seen her often enough raising herself after doing out the fireplace by placing her hand on the edge of the coal scuttle when he looked out again she was standing with her back to him looking about her as though she was calculating the effect of some improvement she had in mind she raised one hand to her hair to smooth a loose hand strand up off the back of her neck into the thick bun she wore she was wearing a white blouse with loose sleeves and as the sleeve fell back her upraised arm gleamed hubert saw her wrist and her elbow and in that fragment of her he saw all of rose as the crescent moon recalls the full moon to anyone who has watched her at the height of her power then rose stopped stooped and lifted the heavy watering can with both hands and began to move slowly away towards the end wall watering the plants as she went the day was almost worn out the light was thin fading light that left everything visible that evening's light was helpless the day in extremity without strength enough left to dissemble with sun and shade with only strength enough left to touch the world as it withdrew forever from that world the evening light spoke and what it said was there is nothing more to be said there is nothing more to be said because what remains to be said must not be said it is too late for rose hubert was silent he had nothing to say and in any case there was no one to hear him I love a good cheerful story. <laughs> um, actually, Anna and Wright in the introduction that she's written for this uh, edition, um, she says, Brennan remains pri- precise on yielding something lovely and unbearable is happening on the page. And I've seen st- the stories described as ferocious, and I've seen them described as bitter, and I've seen them described as angry. Um, what would you say to all of that? Or <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they're, they're full of depth and full of heart, uh, and I do think there's a lot of... Um, Anne also used a great word about her sentences, which are her sour sentences, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is really yeah. uh, an apt way of putting mm-hmm. them. 
Um, and it is funny that you, when you mentioned uh, Edward Albion, who's a friend of Ginger Wolf, I always wondered, because these stories take place in such small, confined space, you don't get a sense of barely of broader Renala and hardly of Dublin. Yeah. It's all within the four walls. You don't even know much about the job on Grafton mm. Street in the mm. shop. It's all about what's going on in these yeah. houses, in these sitting rooms. Um, and there is a sense that they're, they're ve- I, I think it was very claustrophobic because of that setting, mm. but in, in, a, in often quite a, a good way. But I often wonder, you know, if Maeve had... Had things have gone differently in her life, had, had she ever tried theatre, had she tried stage stuff? Because these are very theatrical and very stage-set kind of stories, to my mind. But I think of them as, as very beautiful, but also very contemporary. And again, we can talk about that idea of, of the, the domestic often being relegated to lesser, but there's nothing lesser about these mm. stories. They're, they're, you know, they're really kinetic. They're really kind of full-on. Mm-hmm. And do you have any thoughts, Angela, on why the question that ask, gets asked always of short story writers is about the novel. And so, you know, the, the story of the Durdens and the Baggots, there could easily have been two novels. But, you know, another writer would probably have done that. Another writer might have done it if they'd had enough encouragement. Again, yeah. there's a, a lot, I think it was Toral Moy, I think it's the Norwegian critic who talks about textual politics um, as well as sexual politics. Yeah. But, you know... Um, when William Maxwell and Frank O'Connor became friends, uh, they both uh, had summer places, or I think O'Connor rented a place near where Maxwell had a place, and they both had daughters and they both had wives. And on one summer, Frank O'Connor took away with him from Maxwell's house, I think, two big crates of paper, which was the novel that became The Chateau that Maxwell wrote, which was, again, based on his own experiences. But he'd been working on it for 10 years without success. You know, he, had, he yeah. didn't really know where the beginning was, the middle. He didn't know what the book was about, but he'd been writing it for 10 years. Yeah. And Frank O'Connor came and took this crate of paper away and came back and said, this is your book. This is what it's about. But that kind of support, I think, was not available to Maeve. Now, partly Maeve was high maintenance, you know, that her friends yeah. really had to... Sometimes they had to um, find her a place to live or they had to pay her debts or they had to take her home when she was drunk and heartsick, as she says herself, on, um, in, in one, one thing that she's written. Um, so that perhaps they did all they could for her. Yeah. But um, she does say in one of her letters, I think, if I had, I can't remember what exactly, but I could write War and Peace. Yeah. And clearly she was trying, especially with another set of stories that aren't in this book, but about a, um, a place called, that she calls Sneedon's Landing. Which is, sorry, she doesn't call it Sneedon's Landing. No, it, 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 it is <laughs> Sneedon's Landing. She called it Herbert's Retreat Jeez. up on the Hudson. Yeah. And she, it's clear from her papers that she was trying to weave these stories into a novel mm. um, that she would have liked to. And she has, you know, she has that kind of structural courage as a writer. In that, in that story, Family Walls, that we just heard a, a, a large and wonderful part of, um, she's quite fearless in that the, the story starts extremely conventionally as though it's going to be a very boring story. It's like the diary yeah. of a nobody. It's about this man wondering, if I walk home, will I have to carry the raincoat? Should I put the raincoat on before yeah. I leave work? Or should I just ca- carry it? And it, this man seems to be so boring, we don't really want to read about him, but it's so fascinatingly boring that we keep reading. <laughs> and then we have all the episodes about the door. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, one of her best lines is in that story. I think when Rose appeared in the doorway, Hubert felt such dislike that he smiled. Yeah. 
Um, and that, went, that story went through version after version. In fact, the son of that couple, who appears in other stories, he's in earlier versions John, yeah. of that story, a, a, son, a single child, John, who becomes a priest. But um, then she abandons Hubert, and she starts in on Rose. And that's, I think, what a novelist does. A novelist... Of, yeah. of you know writing in the kind of genre that Maeve, or the kind of kind of writing that Maeve was doing, he starts a, a chapter with one character, and then the next chapter starts with another yeah. character. And as readers, we're used to this convention, and we know that we can have four different chapters about apparently disparate things, and we trust the writer to bring yeah. them together and to tell us why we are making the acquaintance of all these people. And Maeve is able to do that. You know, she's able yeah. to just stop. Cut, cut off and go into yeah. the next. And, I mean, and she was capable of the longer narrative, as we can see in mm. The Visitor. But I wonder, I mean, again, if you look at her life and you'll get that sense mm. from Angela's book, there's a, a real flightiness, a, a real sort of, uh, you know, a, a sort of somebody who's running away all the time. If you look at Maeve's life, all of the addresses she had, all of the places she lived, there were apartments, but mm. there were hotels, there were rooms. Yeah. Mm. There's the story that David Marcus tells about him and his wife being invited. She invites him to dinner mm. in Dublin, and when yeah. they arrive at her house, she's already scarpered back to America. And she did that an awful lot, yeah. just literally yeah. uh, in, in mm. flight all the time. So that sort of constantly moving around, very yeah. peripatetic sort of life, doesn't necessarily lend itself to sitting down to write four, 400 or 500 mm. page novel yeah. necessarily. Yeah. There's and a thing that we haven't yeah. touched on, sorry, yes. if you don't mind. That's her humour. Yeah. yeah. You know, because yeah. Yeah. she yeah. is hilarious. You, you, you can. But we're, we're kind of focusing yeah. maybe on the, on the darkness. Yes. On the darkness. But Actually, she hides all <laughs> these little cracks and witches. Yeah, I have the introduction, William Maxwell's introduction, and he gives the letter. Oh, that's great. Um, Is this the Frank, the Frank O'Connor? It, yeah, I don't know how. I should check my watch and see that how. That, oh, we're okay. When we'll do a few questions, I'll read this and then. So the, uh, a, a letter came from, <laughs> to the New Yorker from uh, a Mr. Boyce. And he had asked if there were going to be more uh, Maeve Brennan stories in the, in the magazine, the Herbert's Retreat stories. And so a response went out to him, the, 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 the actual response. But then uh, Maeve, it was discovered, had written a fake response to the letter. And this is it. Dear Mr. Boyce, I am terribly sorry to have to be the first to tell you that our poor Miss Brennan died. We have, her, we have her head here in the office at the top of the stairs where she was always to be found smiling right and left and drinking water out of her own little paper cup. She shot herself in the back with the aid of a small hand mirror at the foot of the main altar in St. Patrick's Cathedral on Shrove Tuesday. Frank O'Connor was where he usually is in the afternoons, sitting in a confession box, pretending to be a priest and giving penance to some poor old woman and he heard the shot and he ran out and saw our poor late author stretched out flat and he picked her up and fearing a scandal ran up to the front of the church and slipped her in the poor box. <laughs> she was very small. He said she went in easy. Imagine the feelings of the young curate, curate who unlocked the box that same evening and found the deceased curled up in what appeared to be and later turned out truly to be her final slumber. It took six strong parish priests to get her out of the box, <laughs> and then they called us, and we all went and got her and carried her back on the door, on the door of her office. We will never know why she, died. she did what she did, shooting herself, but we think it was because she was drunk and heartsick. She was a very fine person, a very real person, two feet, hands, everything. <laughs> but it's too late to do much about that now. 
I have a lot of live authors, Mr. Boyce, if you would like to ask about any of them. If there is anything you would like to know about any of them, I'll be happy to oblige. Most of them have studio portraits ready for framing, some life-size, some even en famille, as we say around here in our amiable but decidedly spirited, even brisk New Yorker magazine way. <laughs> and thank you for your kind interest in the unfortunate Miss Brennan. I am glad to know that someone remembers her. As for her, I'm afraid she would only spit in your eye. <laughs> she was ever ungrateful. One might say of her that nothing in her life became her, sincerely, and pretending to be William Maxwell. <laughs> so there was the humour. Yeah. yeah, but it's everywhere in the, in the writing. Yeah, and I think, and it is in the story. I mean, oh, and yeah. Katrina brought that through, I think, very much so. Um, so are there questions that we might have time for a couple, or would you have time for a couple, Julie? Sure. No, 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 they didn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think Maxwell found it and uh, used it in his introduction. It was right, circulated in the office. It was circulated office. around the office, yeah. yeah. Before photocopiers. Yeah. It was probably, yeah, if, if yeah. the Stingerfly had an adequate staff and a big enough office, we'd probably circulate similar the, the, the <laughs> responses to... The Frank O'Connor, I think, yeah. is, is very pertinent, especially yeah. as, you know, he, he could have championed her. A lot of men and a lot of anthologists and a lot of male uh, yeah. contemporaries could have championed her and, yeah. and they didn't and also she got her own dig in about specific kinds of Irish writing including mm -hmm. his she called it the, the bog and thunder mm -hmm. sort yeah. of writing and that, yeah. that was definitely a dig at him as well yeah. mm. there we go yeah yes yes yeah yeah it's a lovely yeah. piece of work yeah, yeah. beautiful yeah yeah, yeah. I was actually talking to uh, um, a co uh, another cousin, um, a younger woman who's a writer herself, Fiona Bulger, and she was saying that uh, her, her dad, when he used to go to New York in the 1980s, he'd ring up every phone number, every Brennan in the phone book, hoping to find Maeve, because at that stage, and uh, Deirdre Brennan used to say, oh, like, don't know what, is, they had fallen out, but... Um, don't know what's become of Maeve. For all I know, she could be a bag lady on mm. the streets of New York, and mm. kind of as it turned out, that is what had happened. Mm. Yes? Yeah. Mm. She never did. She never had her own kitchen. Um, but I think that I, I associate that trait in her with her sense of humour, this absolute refusal to take herself or anybody too seriously. And the one thing she really hated was complacency, smugness. So, you know, in her letters, or, you know, Sinead was ta talking about um, the... I uh, can't remember now what exactly it was, but... Um, um, I don't want to waste time trying to, to remember the, the exact phrase she used, um, but but that idea of, of cutting off at a certain point and sort of saying, but but, but whatever, tra la la, you know, she would break off a letter and just uh, make a joke and 
leave it. You know, that she, she knew how to, she worked very, very hard at her writing. She, at one point she said, write, write until your fingers break. You know, and she, at another point she said, it's for the reader. Everything is for the reader. She couldn't bear kind of posturing on the page or making beautiful sentences just for the sake of having them admired. So I think some of that upping and leaving, and one, at one point she w was renting two apartments because I think she, didn't, she found an apartment which had nicer floors than the one she was in, so she rented it as well. And then some of her friends yeah. had to come and try and bail her out of her, you know, to get her deposit back or to that sort of thing. So it, it was also a choice, you know, that, uh, there was a sort of Mary and Martha thing going on, that her sister Derry married very young and had children very young. And I think Maeve saw this family walls thing, this idea of... She talks about the, the son of the Durdens as having disappeared into the deepest crevasse in Irish life, the priesthood. But I think for her, it wasn't so much a crevasse as a prison, that to, to get in there and to be somehow in charge of getting somebody his dinner or his tea every day, that was the thing she was not prepared to do. And it wasn't good that she wouldn't have done it, but she couldn't have written if she did that. So if she were to sort of agree to domesticity... There's a very interesting essay by a woman called Anne Peters, I think it's in the Feminist Review, where she celebrates this, uh, this way that the, the kind of raffish New York that Maeve loved before they pulled down Midtown to build the skyscrapers. Um, and it's the same New York that Jane Jacobs celebrates in the life and death and life of America, great American cities. This idea that the, there were lots of safe places, that a woman didn't have to have a kitchen. A woman didn't have to have a, a marriage and... A sort of a domestic setup. And remember, Mavis Heyday was after the war when the feminine mystique was at its absolute height. And, you know, these ads for fridges and ads for uh, skirts that required vast amounts of fabric and all of that it was all about getting Rosie the Riveter back into the kitchen. And so Maeve was not about to go back yeah. into the kitchen. But, but that life that was available to her, and Anne Peters made that point very well, I think, in her essay, that, you know, it was possible to live as a woman, just get up, go to work. You could live in a hotel room. You could have your meals sent up. You could, there were lots of cheap diners around. There were places where you could sit for hours with a martini and a pile of books, which is what Maeve did. She wrote all these book reviews. So the, the upping and leaving, it was part of being a sort of a flaneuse, you know, of owning the city and being at home in the fabric of the city, not being... Trapped in one place. Yeah. And in the stories as well, it comes through. You know, there's a couple of scenes, and it, the topic of, of when the money is going to be handed over by the husband, and you know, and mm. whether he does it at the regular time or whether he kind of, you know, plays mm. it out mm -hmm. a bit for his own kind mm. of power game or whatever, and, and the woman waiting to get that money and mm. expecting it and, and mm. needing it, of course, as well. Mm. I do yeah. like the idea as well that even if it suggests that she was, you know, disorganised and chaotic, apparently she could fit everything she owned in one taxi so that if she wanted to move, she was yeah. into the taxi. And she did leave things behind all <laughs> oh, the she time. Yeah, yeah, behind yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Like yeah. manuscripts and, uh, yeah. and yeah. all her belongings. Yeah, a whole box stages. of her manuscripts yeah. was discovered in a second-hand bookstore by somebody who cared enough to, to kind of rehome it. That's yeah. how they found her. In the, again, yes, I think yeah. so, yeah. yeah. Mm. But um, any more questions? Or should we? No. People. Okay, so, oh. I did this as well, yeah. And, and, and me. <laughs> <laughs>
I think she, I mean, for the most part, she thrived there. And we, c- we can never know if her mental health issues would have happened had she been here as mm. well. Maybe they would have been accelerated if mm. she'd had a lot of things mm. imposed on her when she was here. But when I did that walk, walk around, and I, every time there's an address mentioned in the stories, mm. you know, the, the, the West Tenth or whatever, mm. and a lot of the addresses that Angela uh, kind of dug up in her book at East Tenth Street, um, they're very small f- circumferences. New York mm. office, Algonquin, mm. New York Public Library. She moved in very small circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she didn't traverse the whole length of the island. Of, and Man- Manhattan, you know, it is an island. It is. It's a, it's a, it's a much bigger and stranger island than the one that we, we live in on the, and the one that she left. But I, I think New York was the making of her in a lot of mm. ways. And I think a lot of the, the, the things that made her life unravel were, were some of her own doing. It's st- stuff she couldn't help. It was her own. It was bad health. But I, I think she definitely had a better life and, and is the writer we know her to be because she was mm-hmm. there not because she was here mm. you know I agree know. Yeah. yeah Dorothy McArdle wrote mm. to her when she was still young Dorothy McArdle who had been a friend of her family's and wrote and said you know I don't think you'll find anything for you here yeah. um, she did spend time outside New York she spent time in the Hamptons and she spent time in writers retreats and places out in the woods and she seemed to have a, a certain tranquility there, and she did some good writing there. But essentially, I'd agree with Sinead, yeah. Mm. She thrived on But then the city changed. You know, the, she came into her 50s at the time of the Vietnam War, and there was, you know, there was a very vicious anti-feminist backlash at that time as well. Mm. And, and the kind of places that she had been most comfortable in, the kind of rather villagey, even not in Greenwich Village, but further north in Midtown, that sort of homely aspect. She said, you know, I, I, all my life it seems I've been moving out of places just ahead of the wreckers. So she's, she's yeah. looking at the buildings that she has lived in being pulled down. So that's the reason she moved out of some of them. Mm. And maybe she would have, again, in the, in the way of somebody making a pilgrimage, she would have gone, she was the kind of person who would have gone to live in a building that was going to be pulled down because she thought it was a beautiful building and she would kind of celebrate the building by living in it for a while. Mm. So... Um, I do think we need to wrap up, so I need to, uh, I think there are, well, there, I know there are copies of our book uh, on sale by Bob at the Gutter, from the Gutter Bookshop who's selling, uh, he's also got copies of Angela's biography, um, and he's got, I know, some long-winded lady of those collection of the essays, um, and I'm not sure what else he has, but mm. you can go and find out. <laughs> uh, and I want to thank Katrina Niwerku and Sinead Leeson and Angela Burke. And I want to thank very much uh, International Literature Festival Dublin for having us here as part of the festival. It's a real pleasure to be able to do this uh, and to bring Maeve home. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thank you very much. <laughs>